through 12. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this in Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Let's pray once more. Father, how we thank you that in calling us to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have also called us to one another in the church. You have revealed to us in your word your will for local churches, how you want them to function, how you want them to live among and with one another. You have given leaders to your church. You have supplied all that the church needs. We pray that you would help us at Emmanuel Church to realize something of the vision that's held forth for us in Scripture for all your churches. We pray that this morning we would understand better and learn to apply better your word to our lives together here in this particular local church. Be our teacher this morning by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I wonder if you're familiar with uh, the Greek mythology surrounding the character of Atlas. Uh, Atlas is that mythological figure who is, in Greek mythology at least, holding up the world on his shoulders. Sometimes you'll see uh, this portrayed in statues or, or things like that. Here's Atlas, this muscular mythological figure, and he's got the world on his back and he's holding it up there. Maybe you're familiar with that, maybe not. I wonder if you've heard of a novel called Atlas Shrugged. It was written by Ayn Rand, a well-known 20th century Russian-American novelist and philosopher. Uh, Famous for two books, uh, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. That's the latter I'm interested in. Written in 1957, Atlas Shrugged frequently appears toward the top of polls by editors, writers, and readers alike as one of the greatest books written in the 20th century. In the book, Rand seeks to present something of a moral justification for capitalism and for free market economics. Uh, She advocates for something approximating what's known as libertarianism, if you know what that is. Uh, And then mainly, as a philosopher, what she likes to call objectivist ethics. I'm not expecting you to know what that is. The book is a novel and drama of a group of extremely successful industrialists who, against the backdrop of the government's increasing movement towards socialism, mutually agree, these wealthy capitalists and industrialists, they mutually agree to withdraw from society as their gifts are no longer valued and their massive capacity to produce goods and services is being exploited by the government and by the lower classes. And what happens when these industrialists, at least in the novel, what happens when these industrialists back out of the market is that the whole fabric of society crumbles and total anarchy ensues. Well, the the drama itself sets the backdrop for Ayn Rand's philosophy of life. And this group of wealthy and powerful industrialists who are the protagonists in her view, they adopt a code of ethics. They create like a commune where they seek to realize and to live out their view of what society ought to be like. They adopt this code of ethics that is governed chiefly by the following dictum which they recite to themselves and to one another. This is more or less the thesis of Rand's book. This is the ultimate value in her philosophical scheme. And this is what these industrialists say to one another and swear to one another. They say this, quote, I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man nor ask another man to live for mine. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. 
This morning we find ourselves between sermon series. If you're visiting with us ordinarily, we are preaching through books of the Bible. We just concluded a series on the life of Abraham last Sunday. We will, God willing, begin a series in Colossians next Sunday. But here we are in between two series, and it is my desire this morning, my purpose, to preach a topical message that emerges from a burden Pastor Ben and I have for our church. I want to preach to you this morning from Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12, those two verses primarily. I want to preach on a few matters related to church life that are as basic to the New Testament vision for the local church as can be. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of what has been called by some every member ministry. I think that's the title for the message I gave in the bulletin, every member ministry. And the focus will be on verses 11 and 12. But I want to briefly highlight a few assumptions that we're presented with in verses 7 through 10, leading up to those verses. I want to walk up to the text, as it were, by highlighting a few assumptions that Paul makes in our passage. First of all, Paul assumes and states that every single Christian, every single follower of Christ, each person who's been born again by the Spirit of God, every child of God possesses gifts given from Christ. We see that plainly in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So every single Christian, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are the beneficiary, the recipient of gifts given you. Each one of us have been given gifts by the sovereign Christ. So there's no place in the Christian life for complacency. Some people think, well, you know, I'm just a humble sinner saved by the grace of Christ. What do I really have to contribute? You know, there are the really gifted people, and they appear on the platform sometimes, but I don't really have many gifts to contribute, and so I don't know that I really have much to bring to the table. This verse sort of obliterates that idea, doesn't it? Christ gives gifts to each one, and so there is no place in the church for the attitude of complacency that says, I got nothing to contribute. Every Christian has gifts given them by Christ has something to contribute to the family of God. But I love how this truth also mitigates against the kind of rampant church consumerism that prevails in our day. So many approach the church as though they are consumers simply coming to receive goods and services from from that church, that brand, that organization. So they want to know, what can you offer me? What can I get? What sort of services can be brought to me? Because I'm, after all, a consumer, and you're the provider or the supplier, and that's how this works. Well, that will not square with this idea, right? Every Christian is given a gift, and they're to bring that gift to the table to contribute to the body. So there's a sense in which we could say every Christian is a consumer, in the sense that we receive things from one another and blessings from the church, but also every Christian is a contributor given gifts from Christ that they're to employ for the building up of the body of Christ. I hope each Christian here has that sense about themselves and about what's going on here at Emmanuel Church. You have been given gifts from Christ to invest for the building up of the body of Christ here at Emmanuel or wherever you go hereafter. A second assumption we're given in the beginning of chapter 4 in verses 7 and following, and that is that Christ is the sovereign dispenser of gifts. Every Christian is given gifts from Christ, but it's highlighted as well that Christ is the sovereign dispenser of gifts. He determines the measure, the degree, the quantity of gifts that are given to each one. Verse 8 says this plainly. Therefore it says, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The risen Christ, as it were, has emerged from the grave and ascended on high The picture is like a conquering general, and he has the spoils of war with him, the spoils of battle, and he shares those spoils with his people. Here, the general is conquered. He's overcome death and sin, and now from this ascended position of power and reign, he's dispensing gifts to his people and giving gifts to those his. This is Christ providing for his bride, the church. It is that the church will not be built up according to Christ's design, unless Christ does something about it. And by His grace, He does. He has put a master plan in place for the building up of His church, and it involves Him as the risen Christ dispensing gifts to His people. Well, then, third assumption I just want to highlight to you is that the church needs these gifts. That's Paul's assumption. 
The church needs them. The, the gifts are given by Christ as provision for them so that the church might be built up. These gifts are given to all Christians, and they are given with the assumption that without them the church would fail. This is God's chosen means by which He is going to support and uphold and build up His church in maturation and in godliness and in Christ's likeness. Christ, from His position at the right hand of God, is going to work grace and gift in the lives and hearts of His people that are going to be the means of His provision for His body that the body might grow, that God's people might be built up and that the church might advance and succeed in the world. The church will not be built up unless Christ gives gifts to His people, gives the grace to employ those gifts in the life of the church. So here's the simple vision now for church. I think we're given in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, with those assumptions behind us and kind of setting up the room. Paul says this in verse 11, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I see three simple steps here in this vision for the local church. And these will be my three headings this morning. We'll see, first of all, that Christ gives leaders. Secondly, that leaders equip the saints. And thirdly, the saints do the work of ministry. Christ gives leaders. Leaders equip the saints. The saints do the work of ministry. Consider, me, consider with me, first of all, Christ giving leaders, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Makes very clear from the word go that Christ is the one who gives leaders to His church. We saw in verse 7, Paul tells us that every Christian is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, but the text now focuses specifically on Christ's giving of leaders to the church. And these leaders in the early church are identified as the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then shepherd teachers. I think there should probably be a hyphen between shepherd teachers. They go together. They're the same office. And there are lots of reasons why I think that is. But pastor teacher, I think, is one of those offices. Now, I want to focus on what is clear in this passage and not what might be debatable and obscure. Lots of commentators and theologians will disagree on how to think about something like the ongoing role of apostles in the church today, or the ongoing role of prophets and evangelists. My personal opinion is that this is a reference to those apostles in the early church. It's not helpful to think in terms of an office that continues into our day today. I think the prophets is referring to a limited office that had utility in the early centuries of the church, the early century, first century of the church. And the evangelists, a little harder to understand, could be a reference to pioneer missionaries. It could be people who have sort of a special gift in the area of evangelism. Scholars will debate exactly how we're to understand the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, but what almost everyone is agreed upon is that the shepherd teachers in this passage is a reference to pastors or elders, or those officers who are especially given the responsibility to lead God's people, and almost no one debates the continuity of that office into the age that we live in now. And so I'm going to focus particularly on God's gift of leaders in these shepherd teachers, these pastors, those given to the church to lead and serve uh, the body of Christ. Okay, so that said, let me just highlight a few simple observations here that I think we're meant to see. First of all, we should recognize, according to this passage and others, that Christ Himself is the source of all true leaders in the church. Christ is the source. Where do pastors come from? Where do leaders in the church come from? They come from the Lord Jesus Christ. We should never mistake this. Christ is the one who makes pastors. Seminaries don't do it. Churches don't even do it. True leaders are Christ-anointed and Christ-appointed. Now, I think the church has a role to play, and seminaries could have a role to play in training pastors. I think all those who are true leaders given by Christ are to be recognized and affirmed by the congregation. So we at our church, for example, vote on any officer. The elders can't just lay hands on a guy. We put him before the church and recommend him to the congregation. But those who have been with us for any length of time, hopefully you've picked out the very specific language that we use whenever we recommend elders. One of the questions we ask is, do you discern in this man 
uh, one whom Christ is giving to this gathering to be one of our pastors. And in that language, I said, do you recognize Christ's activity in this? Do you recognize that God is doing something in giving us this brother? It's not just like we're voting for who, you know, the most mature guy in the room is or something like that. We're trying to discern what Christ sovereignly is doing in supplying men for His church to lead them, what Christ is doing in meeting a need. And our expectation is that a congregation of people indwelt by the Spirit of God are fully capable to discern the activity of Christ in raising up a man in our midst. And so we vote as the expression of that. But make no mistake, these leaders are given by Christ Himself. They're, there, they're His provision for the church. We should see here, secondly now, second observation here under this first heading, that true leaders in the church are given and are to be seen as gifts from Christ. True leaders are given and are to be seen by God's people as gifts from Christ. And let me just emphasize up front that word true. True leaders, true shepherds, true pastors, they are to be regarded as gifts from Christ's hands. I'm not talking about so-called pastors who are actually bad men and who are heavy-handed and dictatorial and abuse the sheep or use the church to gain money or a position or, or something like that. I'm not talking about bad so-called pastors. I'm talking about that company of men given by Christ to His church who are true-hearted shepherds of the flock. Those are the men I have in mind. And those men are meant to be experienced by us as a gift from Christ's hand. True pastors are to be seen as blessings from God. They're to be seen as Christ's provision for His church. They're to be seen as gifts. Their origin, these pastors, their origin is in the love of God for His church. There's a blessed promise in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah has a lot to say about the false shepherds of Israel, the false pastors, if you will, and, and pronounces just horrifying judgments over these terrible men who misled the people of God. But he promises at multiple points in Jeremiah that God is going to provide them in the new covenant age with true-hearted shepherds. Jeremiah 3.15 expresses this well, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. We should just see that promise as God's gracious provision for His church. God is going to intervene through His Son, the Lord Jesus, to give to His churches true-hearted men who are after God's own heart and are a reflection of His heart for His people, and they will feed the people of God on knowledge and understanding. We as God's people should view our leaders as gifts from Christ for the good of our souls and for the building up of the church. And, you know, I would just say in my own experience, I can, I can, I can detect so many gifts from the Lord's hand in my life. The Lord gave me Christian parents, all kinds of opportunities and advantages. But one of the sweetest gifts as I review my life is at so many points in four or five different churches I was in over the course of my life, God giving good pastors. Good pastors are such a gift in the Christian life. And we should pray that the Lord would give us such men to shepherd our souls here in our own church. A third observation here. The authority of true leaders is, in large measure, attached to their God-given calling and ability to proclaim, expound, and teach the Word of God. The authority of true leaders is in large measure attached to their God-given calling and ability to proclaim, expound, and teach the Word of God, to equip the saints, the function they are to serve. Their authority, listen, is not grounded in their personal magnetism or charisma, their GPA at wherever they went to school or their references or something like that. It is in their comprehension of the Bible and in their God-given ability to convey it for the building up of the church. The power of true leaders lies in their ability to open up the Scriptures to people, to feed them a knowledge and understanding. Their authority, listen, is delegated and regulated by the authority and will of Christ as expressed in the Word. Therefore, no pastor has absolute authority. No pastor has the right to say to you, brother, sister, you need to do this because I say so. No, their authority is delegated by Christ to them as those who preach, convey the Word of God with effectiveness and in a compelling fashion. Christ is the head of the church. 
No pastor has the right to that title. It's been said by one theologian at least that the church is a Christocracy. I never forget this. The church is a monarchy with Christ at the head. He is the king. And in his sovereign plan and purpose for the church, he has given leaders at most as under shepherds who work under the supervision and management of the chief shepherd. He is the absolute authority in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might remember when we looked at 1 Peter 5, that was the last series we were in before the life of Abraham. Uh, this, this Greek word is given to describe Jesus. He is the archbishop. We don't think of archbishops in Baptist circles, and we ought not to except for one, and that is Jesus. He is our archbishop. He is our senior pastor. He is the chief shepherd. And those pastors who serve in local churches, who Christ gives to His church, they're under shepherds of the senior pastor. Last observation I'll make here under this first point. Leaders in the church, according to this passage, leaders in the church are key to Christ's plan for building His church. They are part of His plan. I cannot tell you precisely why Christ has ordained it to be so, but His purpose for His church, His strategy, His plan for building up His people is to give them Spirit-appointed and Spirit-anointed men to serve as pastors. This is part of how He has chosen and purposed to provide for His flock and build up His church to give them leaders. Now, this is an important point. To, to, to a generation that hates authority in all of its expressions, it's important that we stake our plot here, okay? There is no acceptable vision for church that does not include the leadership of a few over the church. So, so our reaction to abuses of leadership in the wider world, or even maybe certain churches that you have been in, is, cannot be, it is not permitted to be, if we're going to be Bible people, to abandon the idea of overseers and elders. Well, you know what? We have just not seen authority work well in the church. We've not seen oversight work well in the church. Let's just all agree we're going to be something like a democracy in here, and we're all going to manage this by committee. That is not an acceptable view of church according to the Bible and not an acceptable response to the abuses of leadership that we see in so many quarters in our day. Rather, the acceptable response is to say, by the help of God's Spirit, we're only going to put forward those men who are qualified according to the Bible and we discern to be given to us by Christ. And we're going to support them and encourage them and pray for them and hold them to account. We're going to seek by God's help to establish a plurality of shepherds and overseers that they might mutually help and reinforce one another. But it's not an option to say we're done with this thing that Jesus has put together. Because it just doesn't seem to work in our context anymore. This is part of Christ's plan for the advancement of His church. I was recently uh, with Mark Dever, if you know who that person is. And he made this comment, just as kind of a, a by-the-way kind of comment, but uh, the three of us who were there thought it was pretty insightful. He just said, the history of the church and Christ's advance of the church in His kingdom, the building of Christ's church throughout the world, has come through local churches raising up more pastors than they need. In, in Christ giving through the mechanisms of the local church, more pastors than they need so that they can go out and preach the gospel in other places. This is part of how Jesus is advancing His church throughout the world, giving leaders to His church. And it's important we see this as part of His plan and the vision for the local church. All right, number two, Christ gives leaders. Secondly, leaders... Equip the saints. The shepherd teachers, the pastors, leaders, equip the saints. Look again at verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. For what purpose does Christ give leaders to the church? This is key. It's not so that they could promote themselves. It's not so that they could draw massive crowds who would admire their gifts. It's not so that they could have a platform upon which to perform. It's not so that they could pursue ever-increasing spheres of influence and power and build a kind of career. It's not so that they could promote a particular political party. It's not so that they could have a platform upon which to raise lots of money. Leaders, listen brothers and sisters, are given to the church for this purpose, to equip the saints. If there are no sheep, there's no use for shepherds. Shepherds are not to enjoy their gift in a corner under themselves. They are given by Christ to the church to equip the body, to equip the members, 
to instruct and edify and build up the sheep. They do not possess their gifts unto themselves. They possess their gifts, they are given to the church in order that the church might experience the benefit. They exist for them. That people might be helped and fed and nourished on Christ and His Word. Now, if you're looking at the passage, verse 12, there's an interesting question that emerges if you read Ephesians 4.12 in a variety of translations. A very shrewd brother who knows Greek came up to me this morning and said, are you going to talk about the comma? Uh, Very foreboding. Okay, some translations read like this, if you're reading in the King James Version or the ASV. It'll say this, that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are given for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. Some other translations, such as the New King James, the ESV, the NIV, and the NASB, Read something like this, for the equipping of the saints, no comma, for the work of ministry. So, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, am I really going to argue that one small comma makes a huge difference in this text? Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to argue. (laughs) The question is this, is Christ giving leaders to the church so that they would perform three functions or two? That's the question we're after. Another way we could ask the question is this, of the three functions in this text, which would be the equipping of the saints, one thing, the work of ministry, another thing, the building up of the body of Christ, of those three things, three functions, how many are leaders to perform and how many are the saints to perform? Are leaders supposed to, one, equip the saints, two, do the work of ministry, and three, build up the body of Christ? Or are leaders to equip the saints so that the saints will do the work of ministry, so that both groups together will build up the body of Christ? The answer is the latter, the second of those two. The ESV, New King James, has it right. There are some very boring Greek reasons for thinking so. They have to do with a change in preposition between the first clause of verse 12 and the second and third clause of verse 12, but there are also, I think, contextual reasons for thinking so, particularly verse 7 which refers to grace being given to each one according to Christ's gift. And then at the end of this section in verse 16, there's this vision of churches being promoted. The climax speaks of the role that every joint and each part plays in the building up of the body. So it's not like the leaders are doing all this ministry. Rather, they're equipping the saints so that the saints would engage in the work of ministry, that all would bring their gifts to the table for the building up of the body of Christ in their particular sphere and function that God has given to them. So what does verse 12 in summary envision with respect to leaders? Leaders are given by Christ to equip the saints so that the saints could carry out works of ministry and service among the church body. Pastors are to lead God's people shepherd God's people, disciple God's people, teach God's people, and equip God's people. The growth, maturity, and equipping of believers is a top-level priority for leaders in the church. It is the most important part of their job description. It is precisely why they are given to the church, to equip the saints. This is the very purpose that God has sent them unto His people, that believers would grow in maturity and grow in the faith and be equipped to serve the body of Christ. The question we might ask, should ask, is how do leaders do this? So so how do they equip the saints for the work of ministry? So saints can engage in the work of ministry. How do they do this? Well, they do it in lots of ways. They do it by holding Bible classes. They do it by small groups. They might do it by one-on-one interactions with members and personal discipleship. They might do it through pastoral counseling. All kinds of ways. They could do it by the order of the service and the way that it's organized. They do it in part through the song selection and the scripture readings. But I want to highlight the most important means by which, way by which, pastors equip the saints. And it is through the very thing that I'm doing right now. It is through preaching. Preaching is equipping. The instruction that is given in the context of the preaching of the Word of God is meant to equip the saints so that they might carry on works of practical service and kindness and love and charity toward one another and throughout the world. 
which I think, brothers and sisters, again, mitigates against, even abolishes any notion of consumerism when we come into this place. You can think of this place like an armory. Soldiers of Christ have come in to get weapons of warfare, to fight Satan, to fight sin, to fight for the brothers and sisters, to fight for the lost of the world. The Word of God is like that storehouse of weapons given for our warfare. Or maybe you don't like the warfare language, you might think this is like a medical hospital or something like that. There's all kinds of broken people in the church and in the world, and what we do when we come here is the one preaching the Word is dispensing out first aid kits and tools for different procedures and things like that, that we might operate on one another and serve one another and help to heal one another. Preaching is equipping. And so when we come into this place, we should anticipate, we should come with expectation I am coming here not just to bask in the glow of the preacher's message today, or just enjoy the whole service or something like that. I am coming to be equipped by my pastors. I'm coming to be equipped by the Lord Jesus Christ through the means of grace. I might actually grow and do something with the truth that I'm given, not just to sort of taste it and enjoy it, but that I might have it so that I might actually carry on works of service and ministry in the lives of the people of God and in the wider world. So here are these elders, these pastors, these leaders. What role do they play in my life? Why do they exist? Why are they in this office? They are here to help me grow as a Christian. To grow through teaching me the Bible, through praying for me, through practically helping me and instructing me in my walk with Christ so that I would be equipped to love and serve and minister to others. Leaders are given by Christ to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. All right, heading number three. Still with me. Christ gives leaders. Leaders equip the saints. And thirdly, and the point I wish to emphasize this morning, the saints do the work of ministry. The saints do the work of ministry. Looking again at the text, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints. And I think we could supply in order that they would carry on the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. There are some, I've already acknowledged this, who believe that ministry and service in the church is to be carried on entirely by pastors and by paid staff, by professionals. So you detect in a local church setting that you have needs in this area or that area, and so you hire a professional to take care of it. And before you know it, most if not all the substantial service opportunities are met by paid professionals. Okay, that is a terrible perspective to have and is not supported by the Bible. I say this for a few reasons. Not only does it feed that consumeristic attitude that I've been talking about so far, but I think it also harms the health of the members of the church, and it hinders their discipleship and growth. If I'm a consumer and all the ministry and work and service around here is to be carried on by the pastors and paid staff, well, then I'm just coming here to enjoy myself. I hardly need to be equipped and instructed in the Word of God to do anything, because I don't do anything. We pay these guys to do everything. But see, if you understand what Paul is teaching us here, and that is that the pastors are to equip the saints so that the saints would be busy in every member of ministry, serving one another, practically loving one another, speaking the truth to one another, ministering to one another, well then all of a sudden, in terms of discipleship, our priorities are much larger. I have to be equipped. I have to be trained. This is not just about them, this is about me. There's a role I'm to play here, and I'm to be equipped for the work of ministry. This perspective, if we conclude that we're only going to pay professionals for the work of ministry here, it will hinder Christians from reaching the glorious potential Christ has designed for them, to be the members and joints contributing to the building up of the body. This perspective that robs them of the ministry that is rightly theirs. The vision of church that's described in this text is one that empowers every Christian to serve and contribute. Every Christian is employing his or her gifts for the building up of the body. Service and ministry among the church is the unique province of the people of God. It is theirs for them to carry on among one another. This is what Ephesians 4.12 tells us. 
That ministry belongs to the saints. And Christ's plan for his church is for the saints to serve one another and thereby to build up the body of Christ. Now put a big qualifier on this. I'm not saying, and the scriptures do not teach, there isn't a place for paying pastors or competent staff to handle certain concerns in the church. We have a staff. We're talking in subsequent budget season about hiring more staff. And indeed, we ought to pay pastors, and we ought to pay competent staff. There are very good practical and biblical reasons to hire people to do certain things. But I am saying that for much of the garden variety, every day, week in, week out ministry that is to take place here should be carried on by the members of the church. And I'd say the best officers and staff, best leaders, best staff, are going to be brought aboard to help organize the church to be more effective in serving one another and this community. So even in bringing aboard leaders and pastors that we might pay, it is for the very purpose that they would equip the saints to do the work of ministry or hire on staff in a few areas to help organize the ministry life of the church so the saints can be busy in serving one another and serving the world. The teaching, the training, the equipping that believers receive is not meant to make them fat with truth, It is meant to equip them to minister and serve the body of Christ. The goal and the vision is in every member ministry in which believers are serving one another and working to use their gifts in the church for the building up of the body. Brothers and sisters, we're meant to do something with the truth we're given. We talked about this last week. It's not the exact same point, but it's related when we consider James 2 and how that passage reflects on Genesis 22. That faith is meant to produce works. Faith is to produce love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I see my brother and sister naked, I clothe them. I see them hungry, I feed them. That's the impulse of faith. And James is very animated against those who would suggest they could have faith without practical care and love and works toward their brothers and sisters in the church. The truth that we receive Sunday by Sunday and in midweek settings as well is meant to equip us to actually act It's meant to put our arms in motion, washing feet, providing meals. It's meant so that we would sacrifice our time in service for one another. It's given to us so that we would minister that truth to one another in our various needs and in our relationships. You might think of all the frightening things Jesus had to say to those who were given the law and the prophets and didn't do anything with them. All the statements of Jesus and the apostles about those who received the truth but didn't allow that truth to produce actual love and service toward others. Apostle Paul talks a great deal about this. 1 Corinthians 13. He talks about possessing all these gifts and all this knowledge and all this wisdom, but if it doesn't produce actual love for other people, he says, I'm useless, I'm nothing. I'm like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If truth does not produce the effect of actual practical love toward others, Brother, sister, you're living out some kind of farce, some suboptimal view of Christian faith, some suboptimal view of what Christianity is meant to produce in us. We are not to be the kind of people who sit in pews our whole lives and go from church to church listening to good preaching here and there like someone wine tasting in Napa Valley, but never lift a finger in service to the body of Christ. I hope there's no one here like that. But I've known people like this. I go and I listen to this preacher at 8 o'clock, and then I go and listen to this one at 10 o'clock, and then I get home in time to live stream, you know, John MacArthur or or John Piper, whoever the preacher is. Just kind of going around, tasting little sips of preaching. And, And they never join a local church and throw in with a group of broken, sinful people who need their gifts and who have gifts to give to that person because that person is too theologically discerning. Can't really find a church that totally satisfies my preferences and my theological proclivities. That's not an acceptable view of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. We're to receive healthy truth given to us by our leaders, and that truth is meant to have a certain effect. The effect it is meant to produce in each one of us is practical love toward our brothers and sisters, engagement in the work of ministry. We are to do something with the truth that we are given. We are taught, we are equipped to serve, to minister, to love others, and to engage in good works. The truth we're taught is meant to equip us to get busy washing the saints' feet, to get busy serving the body of Christ, and to get busy about good works. 
You, brother, sister, are called to the work of ministry, to serve your brothers in the church, to build up the body of Christ. And I'll just say a brief note about that word ministry, because I think it can be misunderstood. Colloquially, we might talk about a man who has aspirations for the ministry. When we speak of the ministry, we might be speaking of being a minister like a pastor. I'm not talking about that this morning. The word here is actually the same root word from which we get our word deacon. Service, diakonos. It's saying that all of us, to some degree, are to engage in deaconing each other. I know that's not a word. I'm making up a word to prove a point. But to serve one another. What were deacons called to do? We believe in Acts 6 that that was the founding of that office of deacon. What were they supposed to do? They were to wait tables. They were to care for widows. They were to engage in good works. That, I think, is what Paul has in mind when he says the saints are to be engaged in the works of ministry. So don't think, well, I have my little gift and I'm really great at the violin and what I need is a spotlight in front of the people of God to play my violin solo. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a platform upon which to perform. We're talking about a basin of hot water to dip our little towel in, to bend over and wash one another's feet. And I think it's helpful at this point, we have all kinds of ministries here in our own church setting that you can sign up for, right? You could sign up to serve in the nursery, and we always need more people to serve in the nursery. <laughs> you could sign up to, you know, be an usher on Sunday morning. You could sign up to help with security or with opening up and, 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 and locking up. There are some who might serve in Sunday school and in different arenas like that. You can sign up for some of those things. Sign up to serve in vacation Bible school. I think it's helpful, though, when we think about the kind of ministry that Paul envisions here and that the New Testament has in mind to not think only or even chiefly of those sort of formal sign-up opportunities. I say this with a particular pastoral burden for like our people. There are some who have come to us as elders feeling as though they don't have opportunities to serve in the ways they would want to because there aren't enough sign-up lists. And our answer to that burden that's brought to us is usually going to be the same. It's going to be to turn that brother or sister to look out upon the sea of faces in this room and to say, now look, you see that guy over there? He's come the last three weeks and I haven't seen anybody talk to him. You think he might enjoy if someone came up and befriended him and asked him out to lunch, brought him home or something like that? Hey, you see this sister here, I happen to know she's struggling with assurance. She was over at our house with dinner the other night, and she's just wrestling, and doubt is... Would you disciple her? Bring the scriptures to her? You see that, that, that young couple? You see how they got the kids hanging all over them? And I mean, wouldn't it be great just to support them and bring them over a meal or something like that? Or take the kids for the day so mom could go out and get some quality time with Jesus? The ministry that we're meant to carry on with one another is practical service among one another based on real knowledge of each other on our lives. It's, it's important and good to sign up for opportunities to serve, and I'm not depreciating serving in the ways that we allow sign-up sheets for, but most of the ministry that is carried on in this place is not formal. It's not necessarily promoted by the formal channels of the church. It's people opening up their homes for hospitality. It's people sacrificing their time practically to serve and to speak truth to one another. It's people sharing their very lives with one another, opening up their calendars, opening up their pocketbooks, opening up their homes in service to other people in the church. All right, now as I move toward a close, I have just a few lines of application. Christ gives leaders, leaders equip the saints, the saints do the work of ministry. A few lines of application. The first two I'll just mention very briefly. It's the third I want to reflect on in closing The first point of application is this. If it is Christ who gives leaders to his church, let us pray that Christ would give leaders to us. If it is Christ who gives leaders to his church, let us pray that Christ in his sovereignty and in his love for his bride, the church, and for this particular local church, which we think he has planted, let's pray that Christ would give leaders to us. Christ himself has his hands on the gears of production and supply in the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples looked out on the great harvest and saw that the harvest was plentiful but the laborers were few, what's the solution to that? Well, come up with an internship program. 
Post a job, taking lots of applications. I'm not against an internship program. I'm not against taking applications. But what does he tell them to do? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And brothers and sisters here at Emmanuel, you know that we're talking about this in this season. God, in his providence and grace, has seen fit to enlarge our harvest here at Emmanuel. We need more co-laborers to serve and to lead among us. We've been very open about that. We're spending special seasons in prayer, asking God that He, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, would do what He does in giving the gifts of shepherds to His church to feed His people on knowledge and understanding. Let's give ourselves to pray. Let's look to Him, the Lord of the harvest, and ask that He would provide leaders for His church, and not just here, but in every place. And let us pray for good men, for true shepherds, for wise pastors, for loving men. Second point of application, if it is leaders who equip believers, if it is leaders who equip believers, let us highly esteem our opportunities to be equipped. So the leaders that equip believers, there will be opportunities where the Bible is open up, truth is going to be taught, whether it's in the sermon, Bible classes at 915, or in small group gatherings, or in men's breakfasts, or in other settings. We should highly esteem those opportunities to be equipped for the work of ministry that is ours. We should long for our gatherings and come to them with expectation. Our attitude should be, I'm going to be given the truth, and this truth is meant to have a bearing on my life. It's meant to equip me for practical service among my brothers and sisters. I should give myself to this. I should receive this as the means through which God is pleased to equip me for ministry. I said this before, and... I'm not backing away one inch from this. I'm just so sure this is true. If you are to grow into a healthy Christian equipped for the work of ministry, one of the things you need, brother, sister, is lots of really good sermons. Like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of good sermons where the Bible is faithfully taught to us. If you are to grow into a healthy Christian, you must have, as a matter of first importance, faithful Bible preaching in your life. Otherwise, your equipping for the work of ministry will be inadequate. It will be less than what it must be if you're to be faithful to what Christ calls you to. All right, thirdly and finally, and the point I want to emphasize, if it is the saints who are to do the work of ministry, let us each give ourselves with earnestness to the work of ministry among our brothers and sisters. If it is the saints who are to do the work of ministry, let us each give ourselves with earnestness to the work of ministry among our brothers and sisters. And I just want to give a few practical ways in which we can work this out. I think one of the clearest and most obvious ways, according to the New Testament, that we can engage in the work of ministry among our brothers and sisters is by engaging in acts of practical love and Christian kindness toward one another. Doing things for one another. Serving each other providing for one another, acts of practical kindness in service to one another. I'm so thankful that there are so many brothers and sisters in this church. We just kind of observe you, we pray for you. So many who are just filling their lives with good works, filling their lives with as many opportunities as possible to serve the body of Christ and to express practical acts of kindness. If you want to make a contribution, like you millennials here in the room, every millennial wants to make an impact and save the world. And I don't know who first said this. Everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to do the dishes, right? If you want to have an impact in your generation, if you want to store up treasure in heaven, if you want to live a life well lived, just fill your life, populate your life with thousands of practical acts of Christian kindness among your brothers and sisters and out in the wider world. That is a life well lived. And there's some older saints in this room who have spent their lives doing this and have impacted and served hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of people. And the honor roll in heaven will have many of their names at the top of the list. Some of them will get to go before some of the pastors and theologians of church history, people who gave their lives to serving the people of God Invest yourselves, brothers and sisters, in practical acts of kindness and charity among your brothers and sisters. A second suggestion by way of application. We can engage in the work of ministry, secondly, by investing our time 
to serve one another, investing our time to serve one another. As I grow up, as I get older, increasingly, my time is my most valuable asset. It's one of the most important things to me. It's precious to me. Well, look, there's just no way around this, brothers and sisters. Church life and ministry among one another takes time. We have to be ready to give our time. Listen, your work takes time, and to love and serve your family faithfully takes time. Similarly, to serve the church as a brother and sister among the family of God takes time. And I see a lot of Christians make this mistake. They seem to think their employment at work and their place in their own biological family is more foundational to their life than their involvement in the life of the local church. I don't know how we can possibly maintain that idea if our minds are regulated by the Scriptures. Being part of the family of God is not an add-on. It's part of the backbone of our lives. There's no way to faithfully live among the people of God without that sacrifice of time and service to others. And I could testify, as Pastor Ben and I evaluate many of the needs among the body of Christ, what so many of the members here need, what we need, brothers and sisters, what our wives need, what the family of God needs, is brothers and sisters who are willing just to give their time to one another, listening, serving, walking, being eyeball to eyeball and heartbeat to heartbeat, being willing to open up my calendar and my schedule and say, look, whatever is important, this is one of the matters of chief importance, that I make myself available as best I can, being faithful to all my other burdens and responsibilities. What time can I give in service among the body of Christ? And I would just encourage you to make your time like a tithe offering to the Lord. I'm going to give this to my church And I'm going to say, my brothers and sisters in the family of God have a right to my calendar. I'm going to make sure there are pockets of time and windows that I can give myself to serve brothers and sisters in the church. Now, here's the third point here under this, and this is, I keep saying this, but this is the point I really want to emphasize. (laughs) One of the best ways we can minister to one another is by ministering the truth to one another. By ministering the truth to one another. There's a member of our church who is involved uh, to some degree in counseling, and I spoke with this member a couple of months ago now, a few months ago now maybe, and the question was put to me, in the realm of every member ministry, it's a paraphrase, but in the realm of every member ministry, uh, what are some of the areas where you see us at Emmanuel excelling, and what are some areas where we need to grow? And one of the comments I made to this person is that... um, I see lots of practical service, acts of kindness to one another. More than that, I think the saints here are equipped in the scriptures to minister truth to one another. I do fear sometimes there's like a a blockage there though, that though many are equipped, they don't feel equipped to speak the truth to one another, to counsel one another, to minister to one another, to, to, to instruct one another. Oh, I think we're equipped to do that, but I think sometimes we think, well, isn't that the pastor's job? And so here's a brother, sister struggling with assurance. Well, I don't really know what to say to you, but let me tell Pastor Ben. I'm sure he can help you out. Here's, here's, here's a, a brother or sister caught up in some kind of sin, and they want to fight their way out of this, and they're looking for help from the Scriptures, and we think, well, I better text Pastor Alex with this one. I don't think, in light of this vision of church that we're given, that's to be our attitude. And now I just want to read a couple of scriptures, just put them to you, to see if you think I'm right about this. Romans 15, verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. I'm confident you know the truth, brother, sister. You're able to instruct one another. You don't have to send that person to the pastor. You speak the truth to them. That moment you instruct, you minister to the brother, sister. Galatians 6, 1 through 2, brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says, you who are spiritual, go after the erring brother, the straying brother. I don't think he means you who are pastors. I think it means you who are in Christ and are spiritually minded, go and call back the sinner and minister to him. 
that he might be saved. Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I love that statement. We'll often say here in our, our new members classes, we'll say it in sermons and other settings, each one of us, brothers and sisters, has a stake in one another's spiritual life. Like you have a vested interest in your brother or sister in your local church making it to heaven with you. We are members of one another. The idea should be something like this. If given the choice between this brother or sister falling away and apostatizing or you getting your right hand cut off, which one are you going to choose? I hope without any hesitation, we would all roll up our sleeves and say, cut it off. I don't need this in the new heavens and new earth. I'm going to have a glorified body. But I'm members of Him. She's a member of me. We have a vested stake in one of us making it there. And we act like it in speaking the truth to one another to help one another heavenward. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And this may be my favorite text along these lines, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us, brothers and sisters, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I just love the language the writer of the Hebrews uses there. Let us consider. How am I going to do it? How will I stir my brother up to love and good works? So, so it's the meditation after the message. And you're looking around at your brothers and sisters here and you're to think, now hold on. I haven't talked to her in a while. It seems like she's been struggling lately. What could I say to her today? What, what, what might I do? How can I stir her up to love and good works? Hey, there's that brother over there. It's just been so long since we've connected. And man, I love him. I want him to grow. I want him to be well. I wonder, what could I, what could I do? What truths could I bring? What scriptures might I remind him of as I seek to stir him up? To love and good works. We're to take that kind of thought and care toward one another. And the reason, brothers and sisters, I'll say this and be done, is because we need one another. You may feel very self-sufficient and independent, but the Bible teaches you need your brothers and sisters in the church. We are a needy community. We need Christ most of all. But Christ's purpose in providing for our needs is to give us leaders and to give us one another in the church so that we would be built up and so that we would have our needs met and so that we would be strengthened and so that we would be encouraged. And you are meant to give that same kind of encouragement and ministry and support to one another. So against this backdrop of the New Testament vision for every member ministry, here again, the words of Ayn Rand, I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man nor ask another man to live for mine. Perfect isolation, independence, self-reliance. If you're visiting with us, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know this. We reject this idea. We're a community of needy sinners who need Christ most of all and we need one another. None of us will make a pretense that we can be lone maverick Christians and do this on our own. We're a community of people who need the family of God and need the means of grace and need the ministry that we're going to provide to one another. And if you are interested in that kind of a community, if you recognize that you yourself are a sinner in need of the grace of God, I want to talk to you after the service. Or you know what? You could talk to any member of this church who's fully prepared and ready to instruct you in the things of God. If you recognize your need for a Savior and your need for a community to help you as you approach eternal life, this is the place for you. Humble yourself and go to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and you will find that He calls you not only to Himself but to the family of God. And you will find as a needy sinner, you will have brothers and sisters surrounding you who love you and will minister to you. And what you will then find is that the Lord Himself will give you gifts through which you can serve your brothers and sisters.
We're a needy people. And one of the means through which Christ satisfies that need and meets that need is through giving us one another. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to realize something of this vision that you have set forward in your word for your church. We pray that you would supply us with faithful pastors, faithful leaders. We beseech you, Christ, the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. We do thank you for good pastors. We pray you'd help all of us as members of this church to be equipped and built up by the ministry here that we would energetically and enthusiastically, with zeal, throw ourselves into serving one another through practical works of kindness and love, through giving our time to one another, through speaking the truth to one another. Help us in this work. We pray that every member would find a home among the people of God. Pray that every member would bring their contribution to bear on the life here. And every member would receive the gifts and graces of the other brothers and sisters in this church. We pray that you would make us to be a happy family, that you would help us to realize those ideals you have set forth for us in the Bible. We pray that, Lord, something about the community of faith here and in all your true churches would be like a bright and shining and attractive light to a world full of needy people who are isolated and alone. We pray that they would find in the church salvation in Jesus Christ and brothers and sisters in the family of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.